0: Amen. Children, you are dismissed off to your classes. And the rest of you, good to be with you this morning. Can you turn that light off? I just want to start by saying thanks to the, the media team and just everything they're doing. Mike, thanks uh, for all your hard work. He's uh, going to be clicking through the slides this morning because we can't find the clicker. But uh, thanks so much for all your hard work. Uh, can we just appreciate the team back there, just all the great work that they're doing? Thanks, Craig. Uh, this morning, we're going to talk about signs. Our passage this morning, uh, Luke eleven twenty nine to thirty six, discusses signs. So, yes, please go ahead and open up in your Bibles to Luke chapter eleven. Uh, if you don't have a Bible, there's one in the seat in front of you. If you don't own a Bible, take that one home. We'd love to just get God's Word in your hands. Uh, but before we get to our passage this morning, I wanted to talk a little bit about what signs do. So we're on the same page and have some framework as we dive in. Also, uh, we're going we're, we're to be talking about competing values So listen to everything before landing on your action item. Don't jump to any conclusions immediately because this isn't as straightforward as a concept as it may seem. So we're gonna dive in and look at this carefully. So what do signs do? First of all, signs direct. I play a lot of disc golf. I've played over 5,000 holes of disc golf on 68 different courses in 30 different states throughout the U.S. I I played a tournament yesterday up in Santa Rosa, um, and as I've played, I've seen some good courses and I've seen some bad courses. One thing that makes a course great is great signs. Here's an example of a typical sign. So a good course would have this posted at the tee pad, And it's got lots of detail there. It, it shows the distance to the different uh, baskets. It shows an elevation change. All that kind of stuff shows where out of bounds is. But the most important part of the sign is the one that points to the next tee. Uh, that way, when you're done with the hole, you know where to go next. And there have been plenty of courses that I've been out playing, and I finish a hole, and I'm like, well, now where do I go? And I'm looking around, and is it this way, is it that way, and I'm not sure. And so I'm kind of standing there lost for a little bit until I try to figure out where the next T is and how, to, how I continue to play. Signs direct. If you've ever driven in another state or country, you've either noticed how good our signage is here in the Bay Area, or you've noticed how bad our signage is here in the Bay Area. And it's, uh, in some places, it's really easy to figure out where to go based on how well the signs direct you. And in other places, it's near impossible due to poor signs or a lack of signs. Signs direct. Signs also inform. They answer questions for us like, Is this the bathroom? Yeah, that's an easy one. Uh, go ahead and click one more, Mike. Thank you. Um, do they accept credit cards here? Which one of these is the ketchup? That's an important one. Uh, and sometimes the informing is actually confirming information you already know or think you know. You know, if I'm navigating with Apple Maps, uh, is this the right street to turn on to? So signs direct and signs inform. And our interaction with signs display our trust in those signs. I just mentioned Apple Maps. Go back one, Mike. Uh, Some of you would gladly punch an address in and just go. Others would check it against something else just to be sure. And some of you wouldn't touch Apple Maps at all. vigorous nodding over here. Because you don't trust it. When you see what a sign says and then seek an additional sign, it shows your lack of trust in the initial sign. Let me say that again, because this is important. When you see what a sign says, and then seek an additional sign, it shows your lack of trust in the initial sign. We see this in Scripture. Uh, First of all, in Luke chapter 1, Verses 11 to 20, which uh, let me read for you. This is the beginning of uh, the book of Luke. And here, Zechariah has an interaction. There appeared to Zechariah an angel of the Lord standing on the right side of the altar of incense. And Zechariah was troubled when he saw him, and, and fear fell upon him. But the angel said to him, Do not be afraid, Zechariah, for your prayer has been heard, and your wife Elizabeth will bear you a son. And you shall call his name John and you will have joy and gladness and many will rejoice at his birth for he will be great before the Lord and he must not drink wine or strong drink and he will be filled with the Holy Spirit even from his mother's womb and he will turn many of the children of Israel to the Lord their God and he will go before him in the spirit and the power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the fathers to their children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the just and to make for the Lord a people prepared. looked for an additional sign. Because to him, the angel showing up wasn't enough. He didn't trust the angel's words alone. He wanted something more. So that's one example out of scripture. Another example out of scripture is the nation of Israel... Uh, they're at the border of the promised land and they don't believe that God will help them be victorious as they go in. They had uh, escaped from Egypt and they're standing at the border of the promised land and of the 12 spies that are sent, only two said, yes, we can do this. The other 10 said no. And in Numbers 14, it says this, And the Lord said to Moses, How long will this people despise me? And how long will they not believe in me in spite of all the signs that I have done among them? None of the men who have seen my glory and my signs that I did in Egypt and in the wilderness and have yet put me to the test these ten times and have not obeyed my voice shall see the land that I swore to give their fathers. And none of those who despised me shall see it. God punishes an entire generation of people because they didn't trust the signs given to them. Very clear in scripture. But wait a second. Aren't we supposed to test the spirits? First John 4.1 says, Beloved, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits to see whether they are from God. For many false prophets have gone out into the world. And then, doesn't God allow people at times to, to, to ask for signs over and over? Gideon, an angel shows up and Gideon asks for a sign. He's given the sign. Then he asks for two more signs and is granted both. Moses doubts God's ability to use him or that the people will believe his words. So God gives him multiple signs to show the people that God is working through Moses. He gives him the staff that turns into a snake and the leprous hand. And Moses still doubts, but God still uses him. And Luke just said... Ask, and it will be given to you. And it's ask, and keep on asking. Seek, keep on seeking, and you will find. Knock, keep on knocking, and it will be opened to you. Do you see the tension here? Are we supposed to trust signs? Are we allowed to ask For more signs? Are we supposed to test them? What do we do with all of this? So this morning as we look at today's passage, we're going to do three things. We're going to see Jesus condemn people that are seeking a sign. We're going to discuss why he condemns them for doing so. And we're going to discuss whether we are to seek signs or not. And as we begin, we're going to read our passage, uh, Luke 11, starting in verse 29. And let's go ahead and stand uh, in honor of God's word as we read it. Luke 11, and we're starting in verse 29. When the crowds were increasing, Jesus began to say, This generation is an evil generation. It seeks for a sign, but no sign will be given to it except the sign of Jonah. For as Jonah became a sign to the people of Nineveh, so will the Son of Man be to this generation. The Queen of the South will rise up at the judgment with the men of this generation and condemn them. For she came from the ends of the earth to hear the wisdom of Solomon. And behold, something greater than Solomon is here. The men of Nineveh will rise up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it, for they repented at the preaching of Jonah, and behold, something greater than Jonah is here. No one, after lighting a lamp, puts it in a cellar or under a basket, but on a stand, so that those who enter may see the light. Your eye is the lamp of your body. When your eye is healthy, your whole body is full of light. But when it is bad, your body is full of darkness. Therefore, be careful, lest the light in you be darkness." If your whole body is full of light, having no part dark, it will be wholly bright, as when a lamp with its rays gives you light. Lord, as we dive into your word this morning, um, God, let us just be attentive. Keep our eyes open to what you have to say to us. Don't let us miss it. God, it's so easy to be distracted. It's so easy to be pulled away in different directions. And Satan wants nothing more than for us to be sitting in these seats and completely miss what you have to say. Because, hey, I I attended church. What'd you get out of it? Nothing. God, he wants that. So, God, I pray that as we dive in this morning that we will be attentive to what you have to say to us. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Go ahead and grab a seat. So if you like filling in blanks, I've got some blanks for you to fill in uh, in your bulletin. And here comes blank number one. Seeking a sign condemned. Jesus clearly condemns the people that are here seeking a sign. He calls them an evil generation. He says that no sign will be given to it except the sign of Jonah. Now, what is the sign of Jonah? Luke doesn't make this readily clear, but there's two strong possibilities as to what the sign of Jonah is. The first possibility is that Jonah's, uh, the sign is Jonah's being saved from the fish after three days. In the parallel passage in Matthew, it says, For just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the great fish, it's pointing to what happened there. Also, in verse 30, it says that Jonah became a sign, not Jonah's words. It also says in the same verse that the Son of Man will be a sign, pointing to the fact that he hasn't become that sign yet, pointing to something that's going to happen. So that's one option. The other uh, possibility is that the sign of Jonah is pointing to the call to repentance that Jonah brought. And we see in verse 32, it says, for they repented at the preaching of Jonah. And then also when it says that Jesus will be a sign, he hasn't spoken everything yet. So it could very well still be pointing to uh, the call to repentance. Now, this is my best understanding, and you're welcome to disagree with me, so this is not God's words, but just my best interpretation of them, is that the sign of Jonah is his being saved from the fish and and being delivered from that. Uh, my reasoning behind that, first of all, is that there's more strength to that argument than the latter. Uh, second, 1 Corinthians 15 points to the paramount importance of Jesus' resurrection. Uh, It says, if Christ has not been raised, then your faith is futile and you're still in your sins. And then even more than that, the act of repentance in response to the sign makes more sense if the sign is the resurrection that is then accompanied by a call to repentance, rather than simply responding to the preaching given. So I see a lot of reasons that uh, the sign is pointing to Jonah's coming out of the fish. Again, I could be wrong with that. Hold that open in open hands. I'm not tied to it. Regardless of how you interpret the sign of Jonah, regardless of where you land on, it isn't really a new sign at all. So when Mark in his parallel passage simply says that no sign will be given, he just says no sign will be given, period, end of sentence. He's basically saying the same thing. The sign of Jonah is nothing new. It's Jesus pointing to the Scripture, which they already have and should already know and be attentive to. Jesus even says later in Luke, if they do not hear Moses and the prophets, neither will they be convinced if someone should rise from the dead. That's Luke 16, 31. They're being condemned because they are missing the signs that they already have. Ultimately, the sign of Jonah is a point towards Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection, which is the one sign that our faith hangs on. Remember that signs direct and signs inform. Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection directs us to our need to surrender to him. That we are nothing without him. That he stepped in as the substitutionary sacrifice on our behalf. And that if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection directs us to our need for him but also Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection informs us that he has the power over sin and death, that he was who he said he was, Emmanuel, God with us. Now, Jesus continues in his condemnation of this evil generation by pointing to others that had the truth in front of them and did something with it. They repented. Something that this generation didn't do. The first evidence of this is actually from Dave's passage last week. Just a little bit earlier in Luke 11, starting in verse 14, it says, Now he was casting out a demon that was mute. When the demon had gone out, the mute man spoke, and the people marveled. But some of them said he cast out demons by Beelzebul, the prince of demons, while others, to test him, kept seeking from him a sign from heaven. Here the people have been given yet another sign. When Jesus says that no sign will be given, he's saying that he won't bend to their challenge. Because in reality, plenty of signs have been given and are continually given throughout Jesus' ministry. So here the nation of Israel has a sign in front of them and it's not good enough for them. They see the sign, and they go and look for another sign, showing their lack of trust in what they just saw. Then, Jesus points to two historical instances where people who weren't expected to respond actually did. The first is the Queen of Sheba, identified here as the Queen of the South, Verse 31 says, the queen of the south will rise up at the judgment with the men of this generation and condemn them. For she came from the ends of the earth to hear the wisdom of Solomon. And behold, something greater than Solomon is here. The ends of the earth that she traveled from was from Sheba, which was at the bottom of the Arabian Peninsula. It was about 1,500 miles away. Uh, That's about the distance from here to Oklahoma City, just to put it in perspective for you. Let me read for you out of 1 Kings what happened uh, on her trip and her response. This is out of 1 Kings 10. It says, Now when the queen of Sheba heard of the fame of Solomon concerning the name of the Lord, she came to test him with hard questions. She came to Jerusalem with a very great retinue, with camels bearing spices and very much gold and precious stones. And when she came to Solomon, she told him all that was on her mind. And Solomon answered her, all of her questions. There was nothing hidden from the king that he could not explain to her. And when the queen of Sheba had seen all the wisdom of Solomon, the house that he had built, the food of his table, uh, the seating of his officials and the attendance of his servants, their clothing, his cupbearers, his burnt offerings that he offered at the house of the Lord, there was no more breath in her. And she said to the king, The report was true that I heard in my own land of your words and of your wisdom. But I did not believe the reports until I came and my own eyes had seen it. And behold, the half was not told me. Your wisdom and prosperity surpassed the report that I had heard. Happy are your men. Happy are your servants who continually stand before you and hear your wisdom. Blessed be the Lord your God who has delighted in you and set you on the throne of Israel. Because the Lord loved Israel forever, he has made you king that you may execute justice and righteousness. So here, a non-Israelite traveled over a thousand miles to hear Solomon's wisdom. The way she condemns this generation is by taking greater steps than this generation has has to to do something lesser than what this generation has access to. She traveled 1,500 miles to hear the wisdom of Solomon. And as wise as Solomon was, he pales in comparison to the wisdom of God, which is where Solomon got his wisdom in the first place. And God is standing right in front of them. They didn't have to travel at all, and yet they don't receive or marvel at the wisdom right in front of them. Condemned. So that's the first historical instance where someone unexpected to respond, the Queen of Sheba, actually did. The second is the response of the Ninevites. Look at verse 32. The men of Nineveh will rise up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it. For they repented at the preaching of Jonah, and behold, something greater than Jonah is here. The nation of Nineveh wanted nothing to do with God. Jonah shows up after spending a few days inside a fish, uh, gives them God's word, and they repent. The greater preacher who gave Jonah his words to begin with is right in front of them, telling them to repent, and they aren't repenting. Thus, they're condemned. In both instances, the people that responded favorably are Gentiles, people that didn't have easy access to God or to his word. And now the evil generation standing in front of the Jews or standing in front of Jesus are Hebrews, the very people that have easy access to God's word. In both instances, the thing that caused the response, the wisdom of Solomon, the preaching of Jonah came directly from God. And now the very one that gave those gifts to those people is standing right in front of this evil generation and they're not responding. So they are condemned. Now, let's talk about why they are condemned. Part of why they're condemned is what we've already discussed. They didn't see or respond to the signs already put in front of them. Jesus is literally casting out a demon right in front of them. They marvel, and then some of them ask for a sign. They have the one that gave Solomon his wisdom right in front of them. They have the one that gave Jonah the words to say right in front of them, and they didn't see. Or worse, they did see and didn't trust. But a whole other part of their condemnation comes from the rest of the passage. Let's look again at verses 33 to 36. No one after lighting a lamp puts it in a cellar or under a basket, but on a stand so that those who enter may see the light. Your eye is the lamp of your body. When your eye is healthy, your whole body is full of light. But when it is bad, your body is full of darkness. Therefore be careful, lest the light in you be darkness. If then your whole body is full of light, having no part dark, it will be wholly bright, as when a lamp with its rays gives you light. In the physiology of the Greco-Roman time, the eye did not function by letting light in, but rather by letting the body's light out. So, we are to read this not as what is coming in, but as what is going out. This is further affirmed by verse 35 when it talks about the light in you. It's about what's coming out, not what's going in. So here, when Jesus says, when your eye is healthy, your whole body is full of light, Jesus makes it clear that light is synonymous with health. If red is coming in, it puts the focus on the eye and how good it is at at letting in what is good. But red correctly, the eye is simply a window letting others see what is inside. And through the external window, the eye, others can see what you are filled with, be it light or darkness. When your eye is bad, your body is full of darkness. And Jesus makes it clear that darkness is synonymous with evil or with badness. Again, if red is coming in, it puts the focus on the eye, and thus the person, of how good he or she is at keeping out the bad. The weight and the pressure are on the person. But read correctly, the eye is once again a window letting others see what's inside. Now, let me put out a couple observations, and then we'll make the connection back to the signs. I promise, this connects. Hang with me here. First, light and darkness are mutually exclusive. It's all one or the other. No partial light. This is reaffirmed by Dave's passage from last week. Remember, he talked about choose your side and having an unholy spigot that could give a little bit of warmth. You know, it's it's hot or it's cold. It says in the passage, whoever is not with me is against me. Mutually exclusive. Remember, he talked about how there's no shoats or geeps. He will separate all on one team or the other. In verse 6, it says, your whole body is full of light, having no part dark. None of this, he's, well, he's a little brighter than I am or uh, anything along those lines. You're either full of light or you're full of darkness. Second thing to note is that this is not a permanent state. In verse 35, Jesus says to be careful. He's telling us to watch out, to be mindful of our state. Thus, it is changeable. If you see darkness creeping out, squash it. Give it over to Jesus. This comes back to what the gospel is all about. We cannot do this on our own. We rely on Jesus to fill us with light because on our own, we will be full of darkness. So every time we see darkness creeping out, we need to give it over to Jesus. He is the one that saves us from darkness. Colossians 1.13 says he has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved son. Now, how does this connect? The Greek word that's translated bad in verse 34. When it says, but when it is bad, your body is full of darkness. That Greek word there is the same word that is translated as evil in verse 29. Same word. The people that are full of darkness that have the bad eye are the evil generation. Evil generation, evil eye, bad generation, bad eye. Luke is making an intentional connection here to help us see why they are condemned for seeking a sign. Remember, light and darkness are mutually exclusive. So if this generation that is seeking a sign is the evil generation, if they are full of darkness, then they are seeking a sign with the wrong motive. Remember this morning we're going to see Jesus condemn people that are seeking a sign. We're going to discuss why He condemns them for not doing so, because they were seeking a sign with the wrong motive. And then we're going to discuss whether we are to seek signs or not. So should we seek signs or not? Well, yes and no. We are to seek signs with the right motive. We began by looking at what signs do. They direct. They inform. But the evil generation, the people that Jesus condemns, weren't looking for direction. They weren't looking for information. They were coming at it with a wrong motive. So how do we know if we're seeking with the right motive? Well, are you looking for direction? Are you looking for information? Maybe you're pursuing a career change, moving to a new city, trying to figure out who to marry, figuring out what to say in a certain situation. If the motive is to understand or to get direction because you're unclear, then you're headed in the right direction. I mentioned a specific example earlier this morning in 1 John. It says this Beloved, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits. Is this person a false prophet, right? There's a right motive behind seeking, behind challenging, behind looking for a sign. There's a right motive behind that. Part of also of seeking with a right motive is seeking with a heart of faith and trust. We're told in James 1, if any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask of God, who gives generously to all without reproach, and it will be given him. But let him ask in faith with no doubting. That's at least a little insight into what a right motive looks like. Really, though, it's easier to recognize a wrong motive. Zechariah, remember, didn't trust the sign in front of him. And he was then disciplined. The nation of Israel didn't trust the capability of their God, even though they had seen many signs that showed his power. Remember, they saw the ten plagues, and they still doubted. Is God going to be able to defeat these people? Look, didn't I just carve open the Red Sea for you and you walked through on dry ground? Yeah, but I mean, those people are really big, God. What's going on? How could you doubt that? Because of that, they got to wander in the desert for 40 years. Even Gideon and Moses, with whom God was extremely patient, I don't see them as examples to follow, but rather evidence pointing to a patient and gracious God who helps us in our shortcomings and doubts. The Israelites saw signs and asked for more. They didn't trust the signs that they had already been given. They were asking with a wrong motive. And let's be honest, all those things I listed above, pursuing a career change, moving to a new city, who to marry, what to say in a certain situation, you could seek a sign in every one of those situations with a wrong motive. Here's one tangible example. Lord, should I marry this woman? I know she doesn't love you, but she's wonderful and we connect so well and she's come to church with me lots of times. Um, God responding, I've already answered you on this. But Lord, come on, you can't be serious. Send me a sign. If she breaks up with me in the next half hour, I'll know that this is a sign that we shouldn't be together. There's a wrong motive all over this. You've already received the answer, but you continue to ask because you don't like the answer you got. So how do we seek with the right motive? First, continually check your heart. Again, verse 35 says, Therefore, be careful, lest the light in you be darkness. Maybe as you're seeking signs from God, you pray a prayer like this. Lord, I know I've asked for a sign on this multiple times. I feel like I haven't heard from you yet on this. Am I asking with right motives? Have I missed something you've already said? Am I blind to what you're trying to show me? Remember that whether you're full of darkness or full of light, it's not permanent. There's an opportunity for change. I love that Jesus, after condemning this evil generation, tells them to be careful. He doesn't give up on them. He doesn't give up on you. Continually check your heart. How else do we seek with the right motive? Don't miss the signs right in front of you. I've had people come to me and say, Ben, I've been praying about whatever, fill in the blank. And I haven't heard from God. I don't know what to do. I keep praying and asking for a sign and I don't hear back. And then I say, When was the last time you read your Bible? Jesus points his listeners back to the scripture, which is really pointing back to himself, which is the best that he can give us. Verse 30, For as Jonah became assigned to the people of Nineveh, so will the Son of Man be to this generation. Now does Scripture help me choose between a mechanical engineering job in Colorado and an electrical engineering job in Mountain View? Not directly, but I've found that the more I read Scripture, the deeper I get to know my Savior. And the deeper I get to know him, the more I understand his character, his heart. And then these decisions get easier and easier simply because I know him well enough to know what he'd say even before I need to ask. God gave them his word, the best sign ever, and they missed it. Don't miss it, too. Let me go ahead and have the band come up. I really thought about ending there, but I would be remiss to not make this final comment. We talked about light and darkness, and I just mentioned that we need to continually check our motives. Am I operating from a heart of darkness? Or am I filled with light? We're going to go ahead and turn off the lights in the room for a minute. Can we get the side ones off too? Boom. I like it. Now I can't read my notes. That's okay. Apart from Christ, we live in darkness. We're doomed to a life in darkness. This is our sin. This is all the goodness that we can muster. Darkness. Verse 30 of our passage says, For as Jonah became a sign to the people of Nineveh, so will the Son of Man be to this generation. The only sign we need, the one sign that can rescue us from darkness is the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus. And when we confess with our mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in our heart that God raised him from the dead, we are saved and we are filled with light. If you're sitting in this room and you're filled with darkness, today is the day to surrender to Jesus. Today is the day to be filled with light. Don't leave here without being filled with the light of Jesus. Now, Christian, pay attention. Verse 33 says, No one, after lighting a lamp, puts it in a cellar or under a basket but on a stand so that those who enter may see the light. Maybe you've been embarrassed about your relationship with Jesus. Maybe you've squandered opportunities to share the light of Jesus with someone else. You have the light of Christ in you. Don't you dare put it under a basket. Because when you do, you're right back in darkness. You're taking away the very thing that fills you with light. I mentioned I was at a tournament yesterday, and uh, when you're at a tournament, you spend hours with just a couple of people. You play an entire round with a couple other people, and I got to play uh, with this guy named Samson. And I got to play with him two rounds in a row. And in the second round, it was just me, Micah, and him. I'm like, okay, God, like you're doing something here. Like very clearly I need to be talking to this guy. And so he and I got to engage and I shared with him that I was a pastor. And his next question was, so how do you become a pastor? And I'm like, oh man, here we go. (laughs) And I got to talk to him about that. And he shared with me how people uh, at his work like keep asking him spiritual questions questions and how his parents are Christians. And, and so we engaged more about that and talked about it. And I challenged him as to why he's not a Christian. And we, I just got to lay out the gospel for him while I was playing disc golf. And I've been praying about this for a long time, that God would take something that I love and enjoy, just this silly little sport slash hobby, whatever you want to call it, and to use it for his honor and glory. And I got the opportunity to take that light out from under the basket and just to let it shine so that he got to see it. Don't miss out on the opportunities that God puts in front of you to shine your light for others. Lord, please keep our eyes open. We saw the nation of Israel standing right in front of you and not content with the signs that you were given them. I don't know how they missed it. But then I stopped for a second and I realized, Lord, that there have been plenty of times that you've been right in front of me in an opportunity to talk to someone else, in an opportunity to share my light with someone else, in an opportunity to be a witness, in an opportunity to see what you're doing in my own life, and I miss it. Oh, Lord, please forgive me. Open my eyes so that I can see what you're doing, so that I can see what you're calling me to, Lord please don't let me miss this. And God, as we question, as we wrestle, as we deal with challenging things, God, let us continue to come to you and seek signs. But let us do it with a right motive. I don't need to challenge or test you. You've already shown us who you are and your capability and everything, your character, all of that, that's in your word. So God, first and foremost, let us dive in there. Read your word, be hungry for it. But God, as we ask, let us do it because we're asking for direction, because we're asking for information, because we need to know more. Let us do it with a right motive, Lord. God, help us to keep our eyes open even today, as as we go. God, we're gonna um, just sing a little more and just celebrate you. Um, help us to pay attention to see who you are. In Jesus' name.